0: Uh, the four questions didn't make it onto the back of the corporate confession this week, but I will, re- I will recite them to you when I come to them in the message. But before we continue our survey into the book of Exodus, let's do a quick review of last week's message. In the last message, we resumed in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, and covered through the end of chapter 5. In verse 18 of chapter 4, we saw Moses go back to Jethro to ask his permission to return to Egypt. Then, in verses 21 through 23, we saw the second high-level preview of what the entire confrontation between God and Pharaoh would be about. I'm reading chapter 4. Chapter uh, 5. No, chapter 4. Sorry. Verse 21 through 23 in Exodus chapter 4. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me if you refuse to let him go behold i will kill your firstborn son we will look at this passage again later in this message but for now let's continue with our review of the last message in verse 27 of chapter 4 of chapter 5 the lord told aaron to go into the wilderness to meet moses which he did then moses and aaron went to egypt gathered all the elders of the people of israel together and told them what god had told moses and showed them the signs that he was to do before Pharaoh. And the people believed and bowed their heads in worship. Then, as we moved into chapter 5, we saw the first encounter between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, which did not go well at all. Their first request of Pharaoh was actually a demand, but as soon as Pharaoh denied them, their next request was Merely a little more than begging, please let us go, almost groveling. But it was met with an even sterner denial. For starting in verse 4 of chapter 5, we read, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. You too are wasting my most precious capital resource here. You're idling Egypt's engine of industry. Stop it. As a result, Pharaoh increased their workload by withholding straw from them without reducing their daily quota of bricks from what it had been when they were provided straw, which was an essential ingredient in brick making. It is clear that Pharaoh... It is clear that Pharaoh thought the Israelites had too much free time on their hands. So increasing their workload would accomplish two things. First, it would eliminate the time that they could spend listening to Moses and Aaron. And second, and probably more importantly, it would identify the extra work as punishment for listening to Moses and Aaron to begin with, and so reduce their inclination to listen to anything else they had to say. I attempted in the last message to read between the lines and imagine what Pharaoh's thought processes might have been like. In doing so, I was trying to make it clear that he was more than just a hard-nosed pragmatist. He was something far worse, perhaps a maniacal, narcissistic sociopath. We noticed how he referred to the message that Moses and Aaron gave to the children of Israel as lying words. That's the same way that Lucifer told Eve that God had lied to her husband, Adam, when he told Adam that, they, that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. Pharaoh wasn't just mean and cruel. He was just like his father, the father of lies. He was diabolically wicked, and that is why God was going to punish him so severely. I also reminded you that when things are bad, when the weak and the cowardly have have managed to get into positions of power and are lording it over and oppressing the strong and the courageous, the wicked will never, ever give up their power voluntarily or give any liberty back to those they have enslaved. Additionally, If the weak and cowardly elite ruling class feel as though their position is being threatened by the hoi polloi, they will always increase the oppression and tyranny that they were inflicting upon them. After all, the unwashed, teeming masses need to be taught a lesson. Remember, hatred and cruelty are inescapable. The more hateful you are, the more cruel you will become, and the more cruelly you act, the more hateful and fearful you will become. And so when the Israelite foremen, who supervised their fellow Israelite slaves, came out from their meeting with Pharaoh, we read in verses 20 and 21, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them, and they came out as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In response to that scathing rebuke, Moses agonized before the Lord in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name... He has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I also reminded you of a quote from F.B. Meyer's book, Moses, the Servant of God, that James Montgomery Boyce cited in his message series entitled, The Battle of Egypt, The Life of Moses. Moses died to his self-esteem, to his castle building, to pride in his miracles, to the enthusiasm of his people, to everything that popular leaders love. As he laid there on the ground before God, wishing himself back in Midian and thinking himself very badly treated, he was falling as a corn of wheat into the ground to die, no longer to abide alone, but to bear much fruit." If we have not yet surrendered every area of our lives to God, even the seemingly most insignificant areas of life, we are essentially acting as if we own ourselves and we can do as we please. If that is the case, is it any wonder that God does not seem to be using us very greatly? Now, as we start into chapter 6... We see a third high level preview of what the entire confrontation between God and Pharaoh will result in. In verse 1 of chapter 6, we read But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Gentlemen, those of you who've been in the hermeneutics class, you might recognize that construction as a figure of speech called a synonymous parallelism. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. That's a Hebrew technique for emphasis. In verse 2 through 9, God reiterated information that he had already given to Moses with the intention that Moses was to tell it directly to the people of Israel, which he did, However, in the second half of verse 9, we read, They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In verse 11, God commands Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. In verse 12, Moses gives God another excuse for why he cannot do what God is commanding him to do. Well, actually, it was the same excuse he gave God back in verse 4, of, verse 10 of chapter 4. But this time, he uses a logical argument from the, greater, from the lesser to the greater. Where he says in verse 4, in verse 12, excuse me, of chapter 6, If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? In verse 13, God again repeated his instructions to Moses and Aaron, but with one difference. Here we are told that the Lord gave them a charge. Then in verses 14 through 25, we read a reiteration of the genealogies of what at first appears to be all of the sons of Jacob, because it starts with Reuben, then moves on to Simeon and Levi. But after listing the sons of Levi, verse Verses 26 and 27 reiterate who Aaron and Moses are. And it gives their names chronologically, since Aaron is three years older than Moses. But in the end of verse 27, God refers to them as this Moses and this Aaron, as opposed to that Moses and that Aaron. And then in verse 28 through 30, we see a repeat of the excuses that Moses just gave to God. How will Pharaoh listen to me? The patience of Job is nothing compared to the patience of God. Now, as we move into chapter 7, let us read the first seven verses. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. An initial observation about this passage with regard to the word prophet. This is only the second time that the Hebrew word nabi occurs in the Bible. The first time is in Genesis chapter 20 where God tells Abimelech to give Sarah back to Abraham for he is a prophet. In this second occurrence of the word, we see a clarification of the role of the prophet. That of being a spokesperson for God. From this initial role for Aaron, as a prophet through which Moses will speak to Pharaoh, it appears that the prophet's role will usually be a very confrontational one. R.C. Sproul made an astute observation about the roles of Old Testament priests and prophets. The priest speaks or ministers to God on behalf of the people, whereas the prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. And because we people are radically corrupted at the core of our beings, the prophet's role is like that of a prosecuting attorney. His job is to indict the people with God's charges of wrongdoing. But in addition, he also provides commands for rectifying the problem. He tells them how to reconcile themselves with God. In this role of the prophet to Pharaoh... We don't see the the function of indictment as much as we do the function of counsel on reconciliation. Let my people go. The implication of the indictment is clear. Their slavery has become abusive and must stop. However, the emphasis is on how to rectify the situation. Let them go. In verse 23 of chapter 4, we read... Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here in verse 4 of chapter 7, we read, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. It would appear that the killing of the firstborn sons of Egypt, which will come in the tenth plague, will be the last and final of several great acts of judgment against Egypt. Finally, it would appear that Moses has realized that giving God excuses won't get him out of his assignment, and so we read, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. The peculiarity of God telling us that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh Sounds like the start of an epitaph. We almost expect to read right after that. And so Pharaoh killed them because they kept pestering him and insisting that he voluntarily free his slave labor force. I remember many years ago, I think the first time I read through the book of Exodus, I kept thinking to myself, why didn't Pharaoh just kill Moses and Aaron and be done with their relentless insistence on letting these people go? One important thing that modern psychology has learned from the study of psychopaths and sociopaths is this. They often enjoy torturing and tormenting people. They're not all serial killers. So Pharaoh is the king, so Pharaoh as the king of Egypt. These two are just nobodies. They don't represent a threat to him. They are simply amusing. Oh, here comes Laurel and Hardy again to entertain me. So why not just play with them? I present to you, that's why Pharaoh didn't kill them. He thought they were just amusing. But now, I'd like to address the 800-pound gorilla in the room. I mentioned this in the last message, but we'll take a little more time to carefully and extensively look at it here. First, I'm going to review a couple of key texts from several passages in recent chapters. In chapter 3, verse 19, we read, He will not let them go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Chapter 4, verse 21 read, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let them go. Chapter 6, verse 1, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Notice, there are no terms of probability here. God doesn't say that it's highly likely that Pharaoh will not let them go. 99.5%. God is absolutely certain of what Pharaoh will do or will not do at any given moment of time, every step along the way. For you see, the future is not certain only because God can peer down the corridors of time and see what will happen. No, the future is certain because God has decreed all of its events, including the exact position of every single atom and molecule at every moment in time all along the way. God has decreed all things so that everything that happens happens exactly as it does, exactly when it does, because it was foreordained to happen just that way, at exactly that precise moment, because it was all planned from before the foundation of the world before anything at all was created in logical correspondence and in perfect harmony with the covenant of redemption. Remember the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is the reason why everything else is happening. God is sovereign. God is sovereign and all of his creation obeys his decretive will. Even angels and humans when they exercise their volitional will in cosmic treason against him, they are obeying God, for they, cannot, they, for they can only do what he has foreordained them to do, no more, no less. When we contemplate the sovereignty of God, our puzzlers are puzzled beyond our ability to unravel puzzling mysteries. But rest assured, brothers and sisters, God is sovereign, and everything is doing exactly as he sovereignly decreed for it to do, even when it is in opposition to his preceptive will, the will revealed in his holy moral commandments. And yet, God is not guilty of wrongdoing for decreeing that sin, evil, and wickedness would come into existence. For consider, he established the limits of sin, just as we read in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 29, that he established the limits of the sea. Where we read, he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command. God hemmed in Satan, sin and evil, so that they would only do what he ordained them to do, no more and no less that they might play their assigned role in his redemption plan to the ultimate magnification of his everlasting glory. Just as surely as God foreordained Lucifer to be his archenemy, so he also foreordained Pharaoh to be the arch-villain, the antagonist of the children of Israel in the historical drama of redemption. But let us not forget that even though this was a real historical event, critically important in the process of paving the path for our spiritual salvation, this drama was only depicting in shadowy form the ultimate drama that was to come, the work of Christ, that would occur in God's designated time, the fullness of time. Now, back to Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Okay, timeout. Instant replay. Let's look at that scene again in slow motion. Why on earth would Pharaoh say, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. There's no earthly reason that Pharaoh would say that, except for the fact that God foreordained that he would say it, from before the foundation of the world. Now, reading the same passage again, but without stopping, verses 9 through 12. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Round one, the Lord won Pharaoh and his magicians zero, zilt nada. But what was the result of this clear demonstration of spiritual ground superiority? Verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As the Lord had said. That is the phrase that prompted the title of today's message. Like I said. Just as God had told Moses several times already... So he said, and so it came to pass. It could not have happened otherwise, for it had been foreordained from eternity past. It had been so decided and so decreed, and so it must come to pass. The author of the book of Hebrews said it best. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Pharaoh was indeed in the hands of the living God, whether he would acknowledge it or not. And because he refused to acknowledge God, God crushed him and destroyed him and his country's economy in order to free his people from slavery and to demonstrate his almighty power. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4. In chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, right after Jesus read Isaiah 61 verse 1 in the synagogue at Nazareth and expounded the text to them, which we see recorded in verses 16 through 30, the people became so angry that they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill which their town was built upon, so that they could throw him down the cliff. After that, we read in verses 31 through 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? If there were questions on the back of the Confession of Faith handout today, the notes page, the first question would read What was the subject of the message today? The answer, if you're inclined to write it down, what was the subject of the message is What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? For just like Pharaoh, we too are in the hands of the living God. But it is possible to occupy space in the visible church without actually being a member of the invisible church. It's possible to be a church member without being a member of the body of Christ. And what did the writer of Hebrews say regarding the children of Israel after Moses led them out of Egypt? If you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 5 through 19. Hebrews chapter 3. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Gentlemen, for those of you who attended the hermeneutics class, that last paragraph contained six questions, three of which are rhetorical questions. But each rhetorical question is preceded by a leading question, Oh, and by the way, if you're counting, you might only count five, but that's because the last two questions in verse 18 are combined into one single compound question. The leading question, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? The rhetorical question, was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? The clear implied answer is yes. And who, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? The leading question was it not with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? Again, an implied yes. And to whom did he swear that he would not, that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. We, don't, we do not know the exact issue that the Hebrew Christians were dealing with that prompted the writer of the Hebrews to write them as he did, but we can surmise this much with great confidence the believers to whom Hebrews was written were being tempted to turn away from trusting in the work of Christ alone for their salvation and to turn back to the old ways of Judaism. Now today, we aren't tempted by Judaism, but we are bombarded by the constant messaging from our culture, from postmodernism, from secularism, from mainline liberalism, Catholicism, from every belief system other than biblical Christianity. They surround us and daily call us away from our stuffy old religion. But an even closer and more present danger threatens us. Our old nature's incessant need to be soothed, fed, stroked, and constantly reaffirmed. The human ego is that empty void within us, a void that can only be filled by God. But it wants us to fill it with everything and anything except God. However, it is a virtual bottomless pit. No matter how much we try to cram into it, it remains empty and always craving for more. The human ego is as stubborn and short-sighted as Moses and the children of Israel were. In what we have covered today from Exodus chapter 6 through chapter 7 verse 13, we find the following four lessons. Lesson number one. God may not give us a summary overview of what he is about to do the way he did Moses in Exodus chapters 3 through 7, but we can rest assured that the outcome has been just as certainly decreed as the Exodus from Egypt was. God is orchestrating and executing all details exactly according to his plan. Lesson number two. Our natural perspective, the way that we normally look at life and the events that happen to us, can cause us to feel very insecure at times and make us wonder if we are really loved by anyone, by our supposed loved ones, or or even by God. First, let's look at the situation here in the early chapters of Exodus and then maybe we can see how it applies to us in our daily lives. From a first glance at the details of the story, it might appear that God was more concerned with demonstrating his superiority over Pharaoh and executing his wrathful judgment upon Egypt than he was about actually saving his own people. From the perspective of the children of Israel, it might appear that their deliverance from slavery was only a secondary or tertiary concern of God at best. After all, Pharaoh is punishing them in response to Moses and Aaron's demand to let them go. That doesn't seem to be like the care of a very loving God, does it? The fragility of our human egos can often make it seem as though God doesn't really care for us. Not the way we think he should, anyway. We are suffering and hurting, but instead of easing our burdens, things may be getting worse and worse. Hello, God, is this how you treat your children? Because of our broken spirit and harsh slavery, we often begin to feel that God doesn't really love us. And maybe we can't trust him, after all. That is when the messaging from postmodernism, secularism, mainline liberalism, you name it. Every belief, system, uh, every belief system other than biblical Christianity. That's when it begins to slowly draw us away. Causing us to possibly drift from believing God, trusting him, and most importantly obeying him. Lesson number three. An ambassador for Christ is a liaison to non-Christians. Therefore, that role can be very similar to that of a prophet. A prophet is first and foremost a bearer of bad news, the indictment for our sinfulness, which is the bad news that precedes the good news of salvation and reconciliation with God. Moses and Aaron had the very unpleasant job of telling the Pharaoh the bad news that he was going to lose his slave labor force. Worse yet, they, they risked angering him along the way, since it was obvious that he was not going to comply cheerfully and voluntarily, but only reluctantly, begrudgingly, and with great wrath and animosity towards them. But they were only the spokesmen for God. This wasn't their battle. This was God's battle but Pharaoh would take it out on them. Conveying the very unpleasant message of God's righteous wrath against an individual's sinfulness can be as unpleasant as Moses and Aaron's task was. We need the gracious empowerment, encouragement, and guidance of the Holy Spirit to do that job. And the result, just like Moses and Aaron's first encounter with Pharaoh, may appear to be a complete failure. Those whom God brings across our path to witness to may end up hating and becoming hostile towards us, even though we're just a spokesman for God. Lesson number four, the fourth lesson. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we are in his hands, just as well as those upon whom his wrath will be executed. Remember what we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their their hearts, they have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In chapter 17 of Jeremiah's prophecy, God is speaking of the sin of Judah. And in verses 9 through 11, we read, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It is very easy for us to drift to the left or to the right to slowly wander into either legalism or antinomianism. Therefore, we must be ever vigilant to ensure that we don't harden our hearts as in the rebellion, lest we not enter his rest. The second question on the notes page, if it were there, would have read, what response did the message ask of me? The answer to that question is, I must evaluate myself to determine if I am truly in a right relationship to God. I must evaluate myself to determine if I am truly in a right relationship to God. Do I obey God when I cannot discern what his bigger picture intentions are? Do I ignore my feelings and trust God and trust that God loves me even if it feels like he doesn't? Do I ignore my feelings and trust that God loves me even if it feels like he doesn't? Am I ready to faithfully tell unbelievers the truth even if they will get angry at me? Am I ready to faithfully tell unbelievers the truth even if they will get angry at me? And fourth, do I regularly examine my faith to verify that I am not only giving vain lip service to God. Do I regularly examine my faith to verify that I am not just giving vain lip service to God? The third question on the notes page of the bulletin reads, normally, if it were there, was a how-to given to me for me to respond appropriately. The answer is, I am to thoroughly examine myself in the light of God's word to determine my answers to the above four questions. I am to thoroughly examine myself in light of God's word to determine my answers to the above four questions. Lastly, the fourth question on the notes outline page, if it were there, is was a time frame given for how long it might take for me to complete this task? As always, this is the hardest question to answer. And the only thing I can really say is to repeat the warning of the writer of the Hebrews from chapter 3 verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our adversary, the devil, will do everything he can to keep us from looting his property, to prevent us from sharing the gospel with those who are still slaves, or to keep us from escaping from his domain ourselves if we have not yet been born again and translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, the kingdom of light, liberty, and true joy. Today is the day of salvation. Now is salvation nigh unto you. Don't be like the rich young ruler and go away from Jesus dejected because you are a slave to your worldly possessions. Examine yourself today. Don't put it off. Let us pray. O God, help us to obey your commandments and do what you tell us to do, even if you haven't given us grand overviews or summaries of what you intend to do the way you did to Moses regarding how you would liberate the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Help us to ignore our feelings if we feel unloved, and instead to trust your word and to cast ourselves unreservedly upon your merciful, gracious, loving kindness, especially when the devil tells us that you couldn't possibly love us because of what wretched, depraved sinners we are. Help us to be faithful witnesses of all that you have done and will do to those unbelievers that you bring across our path in daily life, whether they be one of your elect children or the most vile reprobate. Enable us to love our enemies by telling them the truth, regardless of how they may react to it. Lastly, give us Holy Spirit-empowered discernment, that by it each of us might accurately examine our own hearts and determine if we are truly one of your children or just an insincere lip servant whose testimony is as false as the lies of the devil himself. We ask you for all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.